Welcome to GCD Transmissions. I'm your host, Peter Hall, and with me today I have Martin Percy and Tom Lloyd, who are here to speak with us about the current work they're doing, uh, respectively, uh, with Lifesaver VR and a better A&E. Um, first of all, I'd like to welcome you both uh, to the studio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, ask you each in turn, how did you get to these particular projects, or more specifically, how did you arrive at where you are, your current practices? What was your journey out of school into where you are? Uh, can I, I'm looking at you, Tom, uh, can you go first? Indeed, I can. Uh, so I studied furniture design at Trent Polytechnic um, in the late 80s. I then went to the Royal College of Art to do a master's in industrial design. Um, and then I spent a few years working at Pentagram, which is a large agency, London-based agency, which many of the audience will, will know. Um, and then I set up Pearson Lloyd um, with my partner, Luke Pearson, in 1997. Uh, we set up just around, around a table in East London, as you do, in a, in a, in a cheap warehouse, unheated. Um, and we were optimistic and young and naive, um, which is quite a good way to start, I think because you don't know all the scary things that you're going to have to deal with as things to, as things develop. Our practice really was founded on, on industrial design and furniture design. Um, and we said at the beginning that we wanted to try and connect the different cultures of the, the culture of furniture design uh, in, in, in a sort of Italian sort of atelier type way and the, the, the more rigorous sort of market-based industrial design commercial-based understanding of how things are made in mass-produced mass, mass for mass market. And those were the things that, that, we, that we set up. Um, over time, we have um, gone from designing objects uh, to systems um, and spaces. And I think A&E Project is one of the kind of uh, little tributaries that we've gone down as the, the studio has matured and sought out different types of work. Well, and that particular transition out of objects into services is very interesting. I think I'd like to come back to that and what sorts of skills it requires. But uh, before we do, um, can we just ask Martin to uh, do a similar potted history? Sure. So <clears throat> at about the same time as Tom was getting started, I, was, I did a foundation course at St. Martin's Art School. Uh, and left dramatically before the foundation course was fully complete. In fact, I may even still have a St. Martin's Library book kicking around somewhere, which clearly I need to return, along with about a £10,000 overdue fine. Um, I'll get <laughs> on to that later. Yes, yes. And whether they'll let me out or not, of course, is another matter. <laughs> Uh, so uh, after that, I went to I did a postgrad at uh, Elam School of Art in Auckland, New Zealand. I started directing linear uh, film and TV way back in the 20th century. We're talking here, um, including shooting lots of stuff on 35 mil. Then I came back to London around the time of the dot com bust, sort of 2001, 2002, and discovered there was this thing called the internet, and it became clear that if you took the, all the great things that people love so much about film and television, i.e. the emotional connection and the feeling of sort of realism and, you know, vibrancy. If you took all of that and then combined it with the amazing things that you could do with digital, both online and offline, then you could do some really amazing stuff. 
And ever since then, that is what I've been doing. I focus entirely on live action film and video and combining that with various forms of interesting things uh, that can be done with uh, digital devices, whether that's computers, phones, um, or now VR headsets. Uh, and that's what I do to this day. So um, that seems to suggest, again, a, com a different skill set from linear to uh, virtual environments, um, or at least that it would require different skills from you to think about. Yes. I mean, what... <clears throat> I would urge anyone who's listening to this who's under the age of about 30 to put aside the idea that over here are creative people and over here are technical people. <laughs> In the current era, creative is technical and vice versa. Uh, however, there is still a huge social split between the film and TV people and the interactive people. Mm -hmm. And there's this vast, barren wasteland uh, between those two groups. And uh, that's the barren wasteland which I live in. But I think it's great. I think there's a lot you can do there. Um, however, sadly, because of, in my opinion, outdated social habits, uh, very few people are actually actively working on combining film and TV with interactive and digital in a truly creative way. And uh, forgive me if, I, if I've got this wrong, but I always think of film in terms of storytelling and VR slightly differently. Am I wrong? Or is, is, is an interactive environment also about storytelling? You just do it in a more open way. How much do you want me to say about story? Because story is a very dangerous word when mm. it comes to the sort of thing I do. Okay, so if I if I digress, then just you know give me a quick kick. I'm sure our listeners won't notice. Uh, <laughs> so the term story is responsible for a large number of very heated arguments on panels that I sit on. The problem is that story is used in two perfectly acceptable but completely incompatible ways. On the one hand, you have story, meaning. If you go to the multiplex and you give them 10 quid, you sit down, you expect to see a story mm. and it'll go up and down and might have three acts. And, you know, at the end, the hero will probably win. That's a story. And mm. you can call that a story. On the other hand, you have a perfectly valid use of the term story, meaning something much more flexible and fluid and abstract. You know, what is the story of the atrium in Central St. Martins? Well, it's about this cool, funky place, and it's about creative and da-da-da. That's also a perfectly acceptable use of the term story. The problem is when you have a panel or another group of people where you have one person on the one hand who's thinking of story meaning you know, a Bruce Willis thing that with a beginning, middle, and end. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, you have someone who's thinking something much more abstract. Then when they start talking about, well, can you add interactivity to stories, you, you will get two people who will find it impossible to agree. Mm -hmm. um, because, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so uh, in my opinion, uh, story can be used in many different ways. Um, uh, there are all sorts of problems if you're talking about more regular stories with adding interactivity. But coming back to Lifesaver, mm -hmm. You see, Lifesaver, in a sense, is not a story. It's something you do. When you start Lifesaver, you become this hero, mm -hmm. and you've got a very simple job. Your job is to save the life of someone who's had a heart attack or someone who's choking. And you've got about 
six or seven minutes mm. or they'll be dead. Mm. And in the process of saving them, uh, you have to make a large number of choices, about 30 or 40 choices, and all of those choices are timed. You have to do them very fast, and if you get it wrong, it depends on the choice. Sometimes if you get it wrong, the guy will die immediately, um, and then you have to go back a bit and try again. With other choices, it's more a question of losing lives and you sort of cumulatively run down your life level until, sorry, you've blown it. Uh, and again, you go to a game over dead guy screen mm. um, and you have to go back a bit and try again. Mm. In the case of the CPR films, the most important interaction is you actually have to do CPR either by holding an iPhone or an iPad and moving up and down mm. two times a second at, for the right number of beats to save the person. Um, or if you're doing the VR version, you have to move your head up and down as you push on a pillow or other accessory, um, and the device is measuring the movement of your head. And if it's too fast or too slow, the guy will die. If it, you get it right, then you push through to the end, and you will save the victim. Mm. So coming back to your innocent question yes. about story. So is it a story? Yes, of course it is. But because of the nature of it, you don't have these irritating, pointless choices like you turn left or turn right. You know, there's nothing like that. It's very clear what your aim is. Your aim is to save the person who's just had a heart attack mm -hmm. or the woman who's choking. Uh, and then you have to make a whole series of choices to get to that happy ending. Mm. There aren't multiple endings. There's only one happy ending or you failing to get to that happy yeah, ending. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, coming back to your question about story, is it a story? Yes, of course it is. But it's much more useful to not think of it as a story. Think of it as something you're doing. You are this person. You're being thrown into the situation. Now you've got to save them. Mm, mm. More of a game than a story. Oh, or, no, or, another or, problematic term. Sorry. <laughs> How long have you got for that one? <laughs> okay, so the, uh, one term that is floating around is gamified videos. Yes. So is it a video or is it a game? Yes. Uh, so it's and one way of seeing whether it is truly a gamified video is if you took out the interactivity and just watched it as a video, mm -hmm. would it be the same? Mm -hmm. And the answer is absolutely not. I don't think anyone who plays Lifesaver would think it would be the same without the interaction. Uh, also, if you took out the live action, the film of real people in real places, would it be the same? Absolutely not. Uh, because again, there's the emotional connection that you come from film and uh, video, and that is crucial to the effect. You know, people often cry mm -hmm. while playing Lifesaver mm -hmm. because they get so emotionally involved. Um, and that's because it's a real person who's lying on the floor in front of you. And so that gives you much more burning sense that you really do have to save this person. Mm -hmm. So turning to Tom, uh, we talked about that, that sort of interesting how seemingly innocent words get problematized uh, when you move out of uh, one audience to another or one conception of a, an area to another. Um, so coming back to your point about moving from objects to services, different skills, different understandings of terms, particularly with the A&E project. We had a, it. That's a very that's a perfect example because the project was sponsored by the Design Council and the Department of Health, and the Design Council's role is actually it took me about twenty years to work it out. But their role is not to face the design community; it's actually to face industry policymakers 
and other people who might not understand design. So they are they are looking at not designers in a way. And so they, they set up a project of how do you reduce aggressive behavior in any departments through design. And when they put that in front of, they then created an, an advisory board of nurses, patients, doctors, you know, consultants, police people, security people, architects, everything all the way around the table. They all looked completely blank when we walked into the sort of first meeting because they said, "Why? Why would design? How could design have that? Have make an impact to this particular problem? How are cushions going? I mean, someone a nurse did say this. How are cushions going to solve the problem of aggressive behaviour in my in my? Because if you read the Sunday papers and you say, get you see, get the look.'" of someone's apartment in the colour supplements. That's what, fair enough, that's what most people see design as. It's a consumer understanding of what design is. And I think actually it's a, there's a problem with the design industry that we've appropriated design. We've done a sort of land grab of what design could mean. And it can mean almost anything. It can, and, and so we now use design and design thinking and strategic thinking and service design as a lots of sort of rather difficult to understand phrases to, to, to where we're really just using um, we're using problem solving sort of skills that we've developed as designers to start to tackle non uh, not non traditional problems um, that exist in the world mm. or opportunities or challenges or technologies mm. and so that was a very good example of the word design being completely misunderstood and half our time we were spending we're trying to sort of not educate anyone but figure out how to communicate what design meant in the context of this very loose and uncertain kind of journey that we were on. And did did you end up, at what point were you able to convince those or change the conception of design among those you were working with? I think when we spent time with individuals, it made sense. And I think when we um, started to put things, produce physical outcomes, it began to make sense. But we also put together a a consortium, we led a consortium that we built to pitch for the, the grant funding for mm. this project. And it included psychotherapists, psychoanalysts, consultants, and social scientists, and all sorts of other people who had also a completely different perspective of how you how you make decisions about going forward from A to B to C. Mm. And there, you know, our, our, we come out of a sort of liberal arts training where you, you look, you observe, you evaluate, you you judge and then you you try something, mm. and this is very, this really freaked out the sort of the social scientists who have a methodology, an evidence based methodology that's, that's that you you can't just decide to try something, you know. And so there was also even within our team there was a lots of quite a lot of friction about how, why would we make the decisions we make, um, and how could you how if you don't know, and you're not a specialist, how can you possibly think that you could be able to make an impact on an area that right. you've got nothing, you've got no experience. Yeah, that's... And actually, you know, funny, when we started the, the, the studio, it was a bit of sleight of hand where, we, where we, we had to because we didn't have any experience. We had to say, you need to employ us because we've never done it before. Um, <laughs> because... Well, you must remember that line. That's good. <laughs> because... It's the people who've always done it before who say, well, you can't do it like that because it's always, it's never been done like that before. So actually dropping into a, using the same skills, but dropping into any industry, problems, sphere, space, population, um, it, it, you don't actually need to have done it before in order to, we, we believe, in order to, have, to, to be able to take a point of view and, and um, create 
a, a response to whatever that project is. Yeah, interestingly, I was at this conference this morning launching a field called anticipation studies, which is a sort of argument, it was premised on we're going through very dramatic changes, climate change, population growth, and the disciplinary silos are no longer able to deal with these problems. So it was cause for quite a big shift and anticipation studies being an attempt to bring disciplines together and to sort of look at these wicked problems. Mm-hmm. And that that seems to be what you're both in a way um, dealing with, the value of the non-expert learning in public among experts. I mean, is that true of where sure. you are? Martin? Yes. So, <clears throat> Very interesting hearing what Tom's saying. I mean, sort of a similar journey, I think, with Lifesaver. Lifesaver started in 2004 when I did a CPR course and thought, this is ridiculous. This is how they treat, you know, this is how they're teaching CPR in this day and age. Uh, Because it was the classic thing of plastic dummy, um, tea and biscuits, nice person teaching you CPR, about seven or eight people. It had taken me about six months to find a place in a course. And the teacher, who was an ambulance paramedic, uh, did a great job, you know, to the best of his abilities. But then afterwards, I got talking to him about the whole business of teaching CPR. And what he said was that, as I suspected, um, and as I've heard this repeated many times since, traditional CPR training is great in some ways. You know, you get a sense of physically pushing down on something that's kind of like a chest, but it's got really significant problems in a lot of other ways. It's one teacher for maximum seven or eight people. So how do you get to a situation where 10% of the population has done this? Very difficult, especially because everyone forgets after about six months. They don't completely forget, but they forget to the extent that if they are genuinely faced with a situation where there's mum on the floor and she's just had a heart attack and there's your brother screaming at you to not do anything because you don't know what you're doing, they will freeze. And so this is called the trained bystander problem. And it's a key problem with CPR training uh, and happens all the time. So I thought, well, so what we could do is we could put video and interactivity, put them together and create something which was a really lifelike simulation of all the stresses involved with a real crisis. And it'll save people's lives. Who is not going to want to fund that, I thought. So then seven years later, (laughs) I'd finally managed to raise half the money um, from a government fund where they didn't really care what you did. It was just a sort of general digital innovation type thing, one of those uh, funds for which I am extremely grateful. Uh, So we got half the money, but then we had to find expert partners. So we went to all the people you're thinking would be interested in that. And they all said no, uh, for the sort of reasons that Tom's been talking about. It's imagine that we were pitching to the people at that first meeting and in comes this sort of, you know, digital guy talking about his you know fancy idea and, you know, it's going to be so innovative. You know, well, that was so that was, you know, as Tom has already said, that's that's how successful we were uh, until we finally um, I found this tiny charity uh, called the Resuscitation Council UK, who, though they are small, um, they actually create the rules that are followed by the NHS and St. John's Ambulance and so on when they do CPR. And crucially, there are a bunch of doctors who were interested in shaking up the status quo. So when I came in, Mr. Lardy-Da, let's do it digital, they thought, great, because if that shakes things up, 
then we actually quite want to support that. And so they did. And that was how Lifesaver came to exist. Mm. And so it was, you know, initially it was successful and, you know, people's lives have been saved and so on, which is all fantastic. Um, but it's, of course, it's anecdotal. Recently, uh, about a month ago, formal medical research was published on the effectiveness of Lifesaver as a method of training compared with traditional plastic dummy training. And they found that after six months, people who've learned with Lifesaver basically can do CPR as well as people who've done the traditional plastic dummy training. Uh, and they also found that people who do both, Lifesaver and traditional plastic dummy, score far higher in a whole range of CPR scores than people who've just done the traditional training. So it's great to have this formal medical research. It's called mm. the School Lifesavers Study, and it's been published by the European uh, Resuscitation Council. And it's great to have that support as sort of final medical um, consensus that this approach actually really does have something to it. Mm. Um, mm. And just as with Tom's, with Tom's work, which obviously has had fantastic results, it's great to see that creative people, in inverted commas, mm -hmm. can come in and can uh, really contribute something to what is obviously an extremely important field. Mm. And Tom, do you have similar statistics on the decrease in aggressive behavior in A&E as a result of what you've been doing? We do. And actually, I think that was, I think what Martin's saying is very important that projects like this, you know, the government especially need evidence to 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 be to believe something, yeah. and a part of the funding through the design council and through the department of health was the evaluation of the pilots that we did, and without that, I think um, it would have been very hard to kind of uh, let it go beyond a kind of white paper type of study, and I think there are an awful lot of innovation projects funded by grants that die wither on the vine because they they can't. There isn't enough robust data to be able to say, actually, this is this is the impact. Now, luckily, with our project, you can install the project and you can see the impact 24 hours later because the cohort is different every 24 hours. And so you can immediately understand how the qualitative and quantitative changes are taking place. And in the case of our project, we had extreme changes of sort of 50% reductions in aggressive behavior. Oh. And we... We, we decided to go for low-level aggressive behavior rather than uh, everyone was more interested in uh, alcoholics, people who are drug, um, drug, drug amended, <laughs> demented. Interestingly, the, um, the consultancy always use the word demented because it's based mm. on dementia. I thought it was a word that you wouldn't, you wouldn't be allowed to use. Right. But actually, <laughs> someone who has dementia... Is demented, huh. um, and it's still a it's still a it's still a clinical description. Oh. So we should, we need to um, we, we need to reclaim that term. Right. <laughs> right. But rather than I'm not angry, I'm demented. It's the it's the, the anger. The people who are very likely to act up are the people that everyone thought we would be tackling. We made a judgment that if we could stop nice people like us swearing because their six year old has has cut their foot and mm. they have waited three hours. It's, we would end up reducing the, the high-level instance because we wanted to change the culture, the social culture of the group activity of some, for some reason, like in a pub or a football stadium, you're allowed to swear. And we, 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 sort, we sort of made that connection of, for some reason, in an A&E department, people feel like they can be abusive mm. fairly quickly. And obviously, they're in a position of stress. Whereas in a library or in a, other settings, you would never dream of getting up and swearing at the librarian. Well, I, I haven't dreamt of that. 
Um, and so we we made we made particular judgments around if we could solve the problem of of people just getting angsty, we might also reduce the the fights mm. because it's it's if, if if people understand that you're allowed to be abusive, then you're more likely to have the more extreme events. And one thing that uh, really struck home with me, I, I found an odd analogy in waiting for the bus now versus waiting for the bus. Uh, 10, 20 years ago, when you wouldn't know when it was going to come and when it came, three came at once. Um, now you have a little dot matrix indicator telling you when it's coming. And you can even look on your phone and see where it is to sort of validate the uh, bus shelter sign. So similarly, uh, a lot of what you've done is just making people aware of where they are in the system of events. Exactly. And it's also just making them aware of very particular, very simple, straightforward rules. Like the classic one is you are seen in order of severity mm. of your injury, not in order of the attendance. Yes. So mm. someone who came in after you can be seen before you. Yes. And that's what pisses people off. Mm. It's like, why? I've been here three hours. Look at him. And I was advised that if you want to get attention, you go in and you point to your head or your chest and you'll be seen immediately. So if you, have a, <laughs> if you have a splinter oh, and you need to be looked after, oh, just good. point at your head or your chest, chest yeah. pains or head pains, and they will they will get to you fairly, fairly, fairly sharp. It could but be a splinter in your head. It could be a splinter <laughs> in your head. But those kind of uh, very, very simple bits of information. Our, our whole project was around giving people feel frustrated when they feel out of control. They feel out of control because they don't know what's happening to them. And that's the thing that leads to frustration, leads to anger, anger leads to abuse. And so there's a very, very, and so we just traced back the anger back to, from our perspective, it was just a lack of understanding. Mm. So we thought if people mm. understood the system and could contextualize their own needs against the needs of the group, they would, most people would be much more likely to say, okay, I get that. So we had one of the parts of the program is a, a busyness indicator which is just, it, it says how many people are in recess. So if you know that there's been a car accident and there are five people's lives being saved, you're probably going to back off a bit about your splinter. Yeah. But you, because you can't see it through the door and no one ever tells you that, you can't contextualise the stress of the nurses on the other side of the door. And so when the nurse comes out and gets screamed at by the splinter person, and they've just looked, seen a kid die on, on the resource because of a car accident, that's when they start shouting. And, and maybe you would, because yeah. you're, in a, you're in a position of high stress. So the context was another part of the project, of allowing people to understand their, their, their own circumstances in relation to everyone else. Mm. And would that, allow, would that reduce the, the pressure, the mm. social pressure yes. of, of anger? Mm. So in a sense, it's like making the hospitals glass or yeah. so you can see what's going on behind that. Yes. Yeah. And it's actually a good thing if you're having to wait because it means you're not quite so serious. It's yes. when you're being whisked in immediately, that's when you need to worry. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and things, sorry, well, things like you, even now you go to triage, which is an American term, you know, you go and get mm. checked out very quickly and you think, ah, oh, great, I'm going to be seen, I'll be home mm. in an hour or two. But actually, they're just checking out how bad it is, and then they'll send you mm. back to your seat. Right. Now, if you don't know that, you you start getting the same anger. You say, oh, I was seen two hours ago. Why am I not being seen again? Yeah. And so uh, half of it was just plotting out, um, plotting out what is the reality and trying to describe that in a human way back to 
back to the audience. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, because triage is actually, what is it, <clears throat> minor wounds, dead, or sort of mortally yes. wounded, yes. but <laughs> savable. So it's a pretty Door brutal... Door A, B, and 3. Yes. <laughs> yes. That way, that way, you want to go yes. back to your chair. Yes, so <laughs> if you're sitting in a chair, just you know, be happy about it, unless you're dead, in which case, of right. course, you know, you're past caring, I guess. So last question before we melt... Um, uh, Martin, and I'll ask you both, but I'm interested, uh, with Lifesaver VR, what did you learn from that project that then informed subsequent projects? And and uh, if not them, what would you like to do next? Really, what we've learned has just come through in the past month in the shape of this uh uh, formal medical research that I mentioned, yes. which is kind of validating the whole project uh, as a way to train people compared with a much more expensive traditional way of teaching. Uh, so with that learning, we're hoping to move forward and roll out Lifesaver and Lifesaver VR to other countries okay. and also apply it to other crises. Since 2004, <laughs> there have been other things I want to do with using the same approach. Okay women's personal safety, um, how to deal with racial abuse, how to deal with other forms of abuse. You know, these are all situations where people get thrust into crisis situations and don't know how to react. But what you can do by combining video and interactivity, whether in VR or just regular video, uh, is you can create a situation where you very accurately simulate the crisis. You make people feel kind of like they would in the real situation, mm. and then you give them choices. And those are the choices that will either get them out of the crisis situation or bury them ever deeper in it. Mm. So what we're hoping is that we can take the lifesaver approach and apply it to other problems that people have in the real world. Mm. So from our perspective, we've um, the interesting thing for our project was it was funded up to a point and then piloted, but then it was the whole idea was that you take it take it forward into the market if you like, and there isn't someone doesn't say in government, okay, we're going to do this around the country because that's not how the healthcare system in this country works. It's effectively still it is a free market, and every trust is having to make their own decisions about how they use their money. So we took a, it took us a while to to get sort of traction on the project, and but we've now got to about our fifteenth or sixteenth hospital hmm. that's installed it nationwide and we've got two or three abroad who are interested and funnily enough it was mainly nurses who had seen it and it wasn't managers who had seen it it was people on the front line who had mm. understood that that what how that might be relevant to the, to their system and their service um, we had had also the very similar feeling about how this type of communication could work in other frontline services so whether it's police immigration you know, sort of border control, post offices, job centres, anywhere where you have a kind of potential conflict mm. and where you need to communicate. In fact, this is a perfect example, maybe why we're here, is for communication designers, so much of what you read in terms of signage in the world is just about wayfinding. It's about go here, do this, it closes at five, um, turn the lights off, and, and actually, this is a whole different type of communication we've established is, why am I here? And even simple things about, um, sometimes you go to an x-ray and they'll put you through on three little chairs outside the x-ray room. And you sit there and you think, I've been, I've been abandoned. They've forgotten about me. And you start sort of building up the stress again. So we just put a sign saying, this is a waiting area for people who've just had an x-ray. We know you are here and we don't. we will be back when we have the scan ready 
And it just be, having that tiny bit of information. Also, we worked with a writer about trying to find a tone of voice that was non-either judgmental or non-authoritarian. Um, mm. So the language, is, the scripting is very much as though someone is speaking to you, um, which was about trying to come away from a, either a clinical language or a sort of wayfinding language. And so we were trying to find a very particular script that actually that some of the feedback was, I feel like they care, hmm. the hospitals, because they actually felt like someone was talking to them. So that's that was so that was that was an outcome that we yeah. kind of hoped for, but never quite would imagine what we'd see it that explicitly in the sort of data. It's so interesting not to extend our time, but just this point about how we've kind of gone out of a, a sort of harsh modern era of, say, the Jacques Tati playtime scenario, where you're in a cold, hard architectural building that reveals nothing and completely uh, disorientates you toward. Uh, a more humane understanding of how people use buildings and services. And uh, in that sense, your your work is about sort of situating people and revealing information. I feel yours too, Martin, is about situating people and making information tangible. Sort of, you know, it's not about the cognitive, it's about the whole body learning how to do something. Is that fair? Well, this cognitive, this you know, right. th think there, there are a lot of decisions you have to make before you start pumping away on someone's chest. Right. Uh, so it's both. But yeah, you're absolutely right in terms of um, putting people in a situation. In a sense, it's almost like we, maybe we should do a um, A and E saver yeah. interactive video. <laughs> you know, it might, might make people even yeah. more relaxed yeah, yeah, um, yeah. because you know it's about simulating a crisis situation and. Uh, letting people make the decisions that they're going to have to yeah. make, but also, yes, as you say, the actual physical pressing that they're going to have to do. So it's both, both cognitive and physical. Right. Martin and Tom, thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure. This has been GCD Transmissions with Martin Percy and Tom Lloyd from Pearson Lloyd. GCD Transmissions is a podcast from the Graphic Communication Design Program at Central St. Martins, hosted by Peter Hall, captured by Aaron Peace, and produced by Tommaso Russo. Additional support provided by Kate Pellon, Pierre-Emmanuel Lemaire, and Lou Vormittag. Thanks for listening. <laughs>